Welcome to Narrative Responsibility, a podcast about examining the meta story of your life, how well it is serving you, and how to change it for the better. I'm Elena Wolf, relationship coach and life alignment mentor, and this is this week's new perspective. Hi there! I'm so glad you're here today. This is episode 17. Should versus is. I could also have titled this should versus is versus could, but I don't know, that felt a little bit overcomplicated. But what I want to talk about today is how one of the biggest hacks that you can find to making an effective change and honestly having more sense of sovereignty in your life is to let go of these ideas you have about how things should be, like this sense that this should be happening or that should not be happening. And the reason you want to let go of those shoulds, those ideals, is so that you can deal with what in fact is happening. That might sound simplistic, but honestly, it is a huge barrier to addressing a problem And I actually don't see that talked about enough, how if we're refusing to allow that a problem exists, we can't actually confront the problem. I mean, it seems pretty obvious when you say it like that, but yet often we will end up staying in a situation that's getting worse because we're telling ourselves this shouldn't be happening. So it's kind of a way of denying that it is happening. Or we'll be saying something like, I should be taking action here. And so because we're too busy telling ourselves that story about how we should be doing something other than what we are, we're not looking at what we're actually doing to assess kind of why we are or aren't taking action. I also want to say pretty, pretty much up front that I don't mean to confuse should with could. Those are very separate types of idealism and very separate lenses of looking at reality and seeing it in a in a way other than strictly speaking what is there right now in the moment could is a potentiality it is a way of looking at what is and asking what else might be possible or what could arise from this set of circumstances should on the other hand is a way of denying what is by trying to negate its very existence. So these kind of create two different types of idealism. One of them is action-oriented, and one of them is action-resisting. Action-oriented idealism comes from the could. What could happen? What could be? What can I do? What might I do to encourage those coulds or those possibilities to find me or to enter the picture? Should is action-resisting because... It makes the capacity to take action rest on a fundamentally different reality than the one you're in. Well, it should be like that. Therefore, you know, when it is like that, that's when I take action. And so that's why you can stay stuck if you're really bought into some kind of should-based idealism. Maybe this is all a little bit abstract, so I'm going to offer a couple different examples. Not to get too meta about everything, but the first example is the fact that 
I am recording this topic today for tomorrow's episode. I had a different topic that I really wanted to place for the last episode in January, and it is a really big picture, high concept kind of social history and philosophy topic. My outline was not ready to go this morning when it was time for me to record, and I had a very fast window of time in which to make a choice. I could either try to force myself to organize what was literally six pages of thoughts on this huge topic in like an hour and hope that that would be enough to create a coherent outline in order to take action on my ideal, what should be. I should be ready to record this episode by now, therefore I'm going to force myself to do it. Or I could acknowledge what is that Yeah, I had a brainstorm, but didn't actually turn it into a coherent outline. And I have an hour to script something either way. And (laughs) so, um, you know, I suppose I could have tried to force it. I could have rearranged my schedule for the next two days in order to accommodate that. But I didn't want to. I thought that would be a lot of extra stress and potentially distress that I'm really not wanting to take on. So... Why don't I let go of the should and just go with what is and find something else to talk about? And, you know, the the moment of having to make that decision actually inspired this topic. And it's one that's been on my list of things I want to podcast about since back when I was planning to do this podcast. So it's not like this was an out of the blue thing. I I had some thoughts on it and I was like, oh, yeah, actually, this is a perfect example. I can articulate them quickly and get this rolling. And also, (laughs) I personally have a very long line of previous attempts to force reality to conform to that should, to force myself to meet that ideal. I know the kind of energetic capacity that it takes in order to make those shoulds happen. Even the times that I did succeed, the cost to me was tremendous. Basically, I succeeded by abusing my body and or neglecting my emotional needs, and it took a toll on me. I don't treat myself like that anymore. So, you know, in this moment, I found the choice to work with reality really clear. And it was also still a bit painful, like part of me, at least when I was writing the outline and the script, was seething still with this sense of thwarted pride at being told, no, that ideal is just not going to be met. It was like, but I could have, I I know it. Yeah, well, you could have, but at the expense of every other part of me and my life. And frankly, it's not always worth it. Sometimes the vision gets compromised. I hate it, precious, but I have learned to honor my needs versus only my egoic wants. Here's another example. This one's from one of my clients. She's working with me in part to help manage her schedule and prioritize tasks. And one of the problems that we've tried to tackle is this recurring problem of dishes piling up and that leading to this whole cascade effect of other care tasks and chores not being done. And when we talked about why the dishes tend to pile up, you know, several back and forths deep, she finally admitted that 
Honestly, I just hate the feeling of water sliding down my arms. I know I should just do it, but I hate that feeling so much that I can't. I can't make myself do the dishes until there are no clean dishes. And usually that's been several days, several fights, and it's just overwhelming. But that's the point where I can actually overcome how much I hate that sensation. I told her, you know, if you're looking at the situation through the lens you just used, which is, I know I should just do it. I should be able to set aside how much I hate that feeling. I should be able to just do the dishes. If that's how you're looking at the situation, you're never going to be able to solve the problem. That lens is what's keeping you stuck. Because the actual problem is that you have a sensory sensitivity. There is a body reaction of just sort of visceral disgust toward that feeling. Telling yourself you shouldn't feel that way is not going to change the fact that you feel that way. It's just going to keep you from solving the actual problem because you're denying the problem's right to exist. Denying the reality of a problem makes it an unsolvable problem because you're asking reality to be other than what it is. You're making reality itself the problem rather than engaging with the actual problem. You can't change reality that way. Like as magical as mindset work is, and as many ways as we can open up possibilities and new pathways in life by getting rid of some of our emotional beliefs, like our limiting beliefs and our cognitive biases, there is in fact a limit to what they can do. And changing, like changing reality is something that they can't do. So in this case, my client's reality, the embodied reality of her experience of the sensory world and how it feels to her body is that that sensation is terrible and she hates it and she hates it so much more than she hates a pile of dirty dishes or even a couple fights with her husband about it. So saying that problem isn't valid, it should not exist, it should not be a problem, will never change the fact that it does exist and it is a problem. You can't change reality. You solve a problem by working with reality. So if you allow that problem to exist instead of denying it, then it becomes a solvable problem. Because if you're framing the problem as, I should not feel this way, like there's no way to resolve that. You do feel that way. So until reality changes and you magically stop feeling that way, like you can't solve that problem. But if you frame the problem as, I hate the sensation of water on my arms more than I hate dirty dishes and fights about dirty dishes. You know what? That is a solvable problem. You can use a dish wand. You can use gloves. You can get wristbands to absorb the water. There's going to be some way to address the sensory sensitivity if you allow that to be a valid problem and accept it as a problem worthy of being solved instead of trying to force it not to be a problem. Like, if saying that shouldn't be a problem, therefore you just do the dishes, would work? She and I would not have needed to have that conversation. 
She would not have needed to hire a coach to help her figure out what in her mindset was going wrong, like what was keeping her out of action. So saying you should not feel this way or saying this should not be, it creates an impossible problem to solve because there's no action you can take that would actually change it or resolve it. So these two stories are examples that I hope were pretty easy to follow of how our internal narratives affect our capacity to deal with life and to deal with reality. Our stories can literally stand between us and solving a problem because they keep us insisting that there is no problem. But really, there is a problem, and we can't move forward. Or sometimes our stories will tell us that we have to solve this specific problem. We need it to, you know, we need this specific outcome because that's the ideal. That's what we're trying to force to become reality when maybe what we should be doing, the more effective solution, would be looking for paths that just let us sidestep that particular problem and bring a different reality into being. So why is it that we end up in this predicament with these sort of misguided shoulds where we're trying to deny a problem and to deny reality instead of just accepting it and solving it? I think there's a few places that they tend to come from. Part of it is our conditioned expectations. Part of it might be that we have a shame or a guilt reaction. Part of it might be ego or pride. And some of it might be sort of this rigid idealism, idealism in the most negative sense of that term. So let's unpack each of these a little bit. Our conditioned expectations are beliefs that we have that come from what we absorb from other people often, although not always in childhood, the, the most insidious and hard to find ones certainly come from childhood. But, you know, we can pick them up just from our culture at large and the people that we're around even as adults. So these kind of conditioned beliefs might be from things that other people are saying directly about life. Or it might be things that we observe in how they react to life or situations or it might be things that they say in response to our reactions to life or things that we're saying about it. For example, a parent who mocks or threatens a child that's expressing a sensory sensitivity, like, oh my god, I hate the feeling of dishes, dishwater, not dishes themselves, though I guess you could hate the feeling of dishes, but like, call back to our, you know, our story, I hate the feeling of dishwater. If that parent tells the child, you're silly, or that's all in your head, or that's not a problem worth crying about, what they're doing is teaching that child that their physical discomfort is not a real problem, and it's not worthy of being taken seriously. It's not a problem worth solving. So for that child who really doesn't have a lot of choice in you know, in that relationship or that context, the better option is just to endure a sensation that they hate and move on. And probably that solves the parent's problem of, you know, why is my kid not doing the dishes? Okay. But what does, what beliefs does that child take on as a result that the way they feel in their body doesn't matter or that their discomfort is less important than the task at hand? Well, what happens when you're an adult and you don't have somebody who has authority over you to force you to do those things. 
you're going to end up in a situation like my client where you deny the fact that that's a worthy problem to solve, but yet you can't force yourself to act in spite of that problem. And, you know, sometimes those conditionings will tell us that it's unsafe to accept reality, that we'll be punished for it or disciplined or shamed if we treat that problem as a real problem. And so then we feel unsafe to even acknowledge the reality of that problem. And if someone is having, you know, a nervous system activation, a genuine fear response to the idea of confronting reality for what it is, that's going to put a real barrier in between them and looking at that problem directly and assessing it for what it truly is. Okay, so let's talk about shame and guilt. We might carry shame around feeling something that others don't seem to feel or something that we have been told is not real or not a big deal, not important. We might feel shame at being unable to do what is being asked of us. You know, in this case, maybe just let it go. Don't feel that way. Don't feel that thing. Or we may feel guilty for needing some kind of special accommodation. Maybe we feel guilty for not being able to force ourselves to act in spite of discomfort or to need a special tool or, or, or something like that. Shame and guilt can be particularly paralyzing emotions. And they tell us a story that there is something wrong with us for not being able to change reality to fit this ideal that we were given. But they don't bother to tell us that that lens of belief was imposed upon us, possibly without our permission and definitely without our conscious knowledge, if it was by our family or our school or our church or our society, especially if it happened when we were kids. We didn't consent to that. We didn't agree to take on that belief. It was imposed on us. And then we can end up in this situation of just being paralyzed by the guilt and shame of feeling at odds with that belief, but not feeling like we have the authority to question that belief. What about ego and pride, which is kind of a different thing? We might have a story that links our self-worth or our value to others to our ability to bend reality to our will. So this might emerge as stories like, I don't have to be bound by the limits of this stupid biological body, or possibly even by Euclidean space-time. Those rules don't apply to me. Those limits don't apply to me. We might feel pride in being able to do impossible things or in pushing past limits that other people would follow. And we might over-identify our sense of self with what we do, with what we achieve or accomplish. And so we can take failures as an invalidation of our self. Or if we, you know, are really deeply linked on an identity level to what we do, then maybe that's equated to our worth as a human being. Like, I'm only as good as what I do, therefore not performing according to my ideals means that I'm not a good person or I'm not good enough. <sighs> yeah, I, past me was super guilty of this. Nowadays, I'm much better at it, but this was a narrative that I carried for a really long time. I measured my worth by my achievements. I will say they were achieve achievements according to my standards, not external ones as if this somehow <laughs> makes it better, but at least they were authentic. Um, 
You know, for example, if I got an A on a project that I knew I really hadn't tried very hard on, even though like there was the external marker of, oh, I got a really good grade on that, I didn't personally feel pride in that because I knew that I hadn't actually tried very hard. Or if I didn't give everything I could have to a project that I cared about, you know, that was the measure of my success. Did I actually give everything I possibly could have? Because if I didn't, then I failed. In behaving this way, in following this kind of idealism, I was very cruel to my body. I held myself to these insane, almost robotic production standards, and I burned myself out. When I decommissioned that tool and said, I will not do that to myself again, I had a lot of hits to my pride and my sense of identity when reality would tell me, no, actually, you can't accomplish that that on the timeline you're trying to if you're not willing to hurt yourself to do it. And sometimes I still fight with this belief pattern. It's also just a lot quicker these days. I don't have to start down... Well, okay, usually, <laughs> usually I don't have to start down the road of trying to force it before I can accept that I need to compromise. So, you know, for those of you listening to this, like, here's evidence. I am not perfect. I've just, I'm just years down this road of self-management and personal development work. So these stories are overcomable. It just takes some time. you got to recognize them. And then you have to do the work to break those patterns. So the last one, idealism in its more rigid negative form. This kind of idealism is destructive because it's an emotional rejection of reality. It's kind of the proverbial rose-colored glasses that see only what they want to. It can be a usually is, I shouldn't say it can be, usually this is a self-protective mechanism that's trying to shield us from the emotional pain of being let down or disappointed. It can also be an attempt to gain certainty to shield us from the fear of the unknown. Like if you're fixated on wanting something, even if it's impossible, then staying fixated on it and, you know, continuing to fling yourself against this wall of impossibility allows you to avoid the question of what you would want or what you would actually do and instead if you admitted that it was impossible. But let me be clear that I am not trying to promote pragmatism over idealism per se, because I think sometimes the so-called pragmatism or realism is just as much of a reality-denying mechanism as like pie-in-the-sky, hard-headed idealism is. It's just disguised as the opposite. So, for example, people who tell you, oh, you need to stop dreaming or, or don't want more, you know, if they insist that the only possibilities in life are the ones that you see right in front of you, that perspective is just as blinded by belief it only sounds like it's not because it's grounded in the what is right here and right now. But the right here and right now is not all there is to the world. It's not all we will ever have to work with. Unless, that is, we act in ways that do not allow those other options, those mores, to find us. We certainly can make it so that this right here, right now is all there ever is to our experience. But that doesn't mean that 
that's all there ever could have been, that that was all that actually existed for us. It was simply that we refused to see pathways toward that more in the same way that refusing to see pathways to solving a problem you think shouldn't exist keep you stuck. So when I'm talking about idealism here, I don't actually mean the sense of what could be or what the possibilities out there might be, what opportunities are available to you that have not been actualized yet. I'm, I'm talking about the idealism and beliefs that lead you into an antagonistic relationship with reality because they won't let you acknowledge either the problem or the potential route around pathways, the other pathways that might be there. So you've been listening to this. Where are you in your relationship with reality right now? Do you have any problems that are seemingly impossible to solve just with willpower? Perhaps it's because you're not seeing the problem clearly. Maybe you're looking at it through the lens of a belief that it should be some other way. And so you're not able to simply acknowledge, well, this is the problem and start looking at solutions to the actual problem. You're still stuck on this ideal that it should be some other way, that reality should be other than what it is. If that's you, if that's resonating, let's talk about it. <laughs> I have just started a Patreon to support this podcast. And really what I'm hoping to do with it is to create a place for discussion that for those of you listening in my audience who maybe don't have anyone else to talk about these ideas with, that we can get kind of a discussion forum and a conversation going where whatever got brought up for you in a particular episode, there's other people who want to hear about it and want to share maybe what came up for them and create a richer dialogue than what anybody's going to get just listening to me monologue for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes a week. If you're interested, I have three different tiers. The first one is just a dollar a month. And that gets you access to the community and any extras that I put up that might be things like visual aids or, or worksheets for a particularly information-heavy episode. And maybe little kind of artistic extras, like I'm thinking I'll probably put up the full version of, of the song from episode five, for example, that kind of thing. $5 a month, you get to vote or suggest topics. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to do that, but... I think I'll periodically have like AMA style episodes or once a quarter or something like that. Let the audience decide, we want to hear you talk about this topic or tackle this problem. And I think that would be a really cool way for people to get to have some say in the content that they're engaging with. And then for the $20 a month, you'll get some kind of monthly event with me via Zoom or some other kind of online gathering it might be like a shamanic drumming circle. It might be a discussion group. I might start a book club if there's interest. I, I think that kind of has to be determined by the people in that tier and what they might want. But that's kind of what you get for joining in. And I would really love to see you there and get to continue the conversation or actually get to make it a conversation <laughs> as opposed to just a lecture, just, you know, me talking here into my microphone, trusting that you're out there listening. So that's it for today. If you want to know more about my work, you can follow me on Instagram at The Pattern Breaker. You can look at my website, thepatternbreaker.com. You can find me on Patreon 
at patreon.com slash narrative responsibility. And in the meantime, what part of your story are you going to take responsibility for this week? <laughs>